KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. John Carpenter celebrated his 69th birthday on January 16th, so it's the perfect time to pay tribute to the filmmaker and launch a film series dedicated to his work. So I'm digging into my archives for a pair of interviews I did with John Carpenter. One was in 1998 when Carpenter's Vampires was being released, and the other in 2012 when there was a re-release of Halloween. Carpenter politely turned down my new request for interviews, but these archive interviews allow some insights into the filmmaker and how he makes his movies. It's all in the reflexes. As part of Film Geek San Diego and with my partner in crime, Miguel Rodriguez, we're kicking off Big Trouble in Little Cinema, the films of John Carpenter on January 22nd with his student film, Dark Star. The Little Cinema being the Digital Gym Cinema, a 46-seat micro-cinema. We wanted to program this year-long film series so that we could show all his major feature films and in chronological order so that you can see him develop as a filmmaker. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. Since the Academy Awards are just around the corner, I was made aware yet again that John Carpenter has never been nominated for an Academy Award. Not for directing, not for composing, and not for writing. That might not be of any importance to those of us who admire and love his work, but the Oscars are the awards of the industry, and it's a shame, no, it's a crime, that Hollywood has not shown more respect and appreciation for a filmmaker who knows his craft as well as such predecessors as Howard Hawks and John Ford. Carpenter is every bit the craftsman that those veteran studio directors were, but he's also an iconoclastic artist who represents a generation of directors that cut their teeth in the 1970s. Dark star. They're not lost in space. They're loose. Carpenter began his career as something of a golden boy. His student film, Dark Star, received theatrical distribution in 1974, and his Halloween defined a new slasher film genre and created a horror icon in Michael Myers. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. But later films such as The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, and They Live initially did poorly at the box office and tarnished his popularity in Hollywood. But time has proven the genius in these films, and The Thing is consistently ranked as one of the best remakes of all time. The reason these films last and can be rewatched endlessly is because Carpenter makes genre films and then proceeds to subtly transcend the genre. Freeze! This is the police. Drop your weapons and place your hands above your heads. Assault on Precinct 13 is superficially a B-action film, but underneath it's a look at race relations and urban violence. Halloween is a boogeyman horror film, but it's also an exercise in cinematic tension. Here's how Sandy King, Carpenter's producer since 1988 and his wife since 1990, described how Halloween was not about blood and guts, but about building tension. That's in contrast to what many of the slasher films that followed tried to do. But what happened was... You can copy an idea and not get it right. 
and this isn't just because of my association with John. I mean, one of the reasons I became associated with him was that this was the guy that could make me afraid to go down the hallway. This was the guy that when I watched the dog walk down the hall in the thing, it's right. one of the most riveting, quiet minutes of suspense. It, it, you pay it off with the bang. You pay it off with the, the you know, exploding things and tentacles and stuff. But what, where you're getting people is the tension. In the original Halloween, there's very little blood. You very rarely see a murder. Body count's up there. Very little blood. More blood was spilled as, as you went on, and then the Freddy movies got more and more bloody. I haven't seen H2O, but I know um, from talking to Jamie, it was a lot bloodier. But the blood's definitely up. You're definitely, you know, increasing your uh, carbable budget every time. That was Vampire's producer Sandy King. Before I got to interview John Carpenter one-on-one back in 1998, I participated in the press roundtable with the director. He mentioned that he had been typecast as a horror director. So I asked him if he liked working in the genre or if he felt limited by it. I love horror movies and fantasy. I grew up with it. I grew up being a gigantic science fiction fan. I'm also the luckiest guy on the earth because once you, once you have something like that, uh, after Halloween, I began to make, within the, the genre, lots of different kinds of movies. I made a romantic comedy. I made a monster movie. I actually did a kung fu ghost story in Chinatown. I mean, I, you get to do a lot of stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily do. So, no, it's not limiting. But you must remember, I got in this business to make westerns. I actually wrote a western for John Wayne back in the 70s, before he died, right before he died. Uh, so my first love, in a sense, is the western. But there's, it's hard to get that into a horror film. He then spoke about his legacy and how he might want to be remembered. I'm just happy to be here. That's, <laughs> I just want to be remembered as somebody who showed up for a while and went away. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. There's no way a kid from Bowling Green, Kentucky could ever become a film director. There's no way. Much less have a whole career, be lucky enough to have his name associated with movies. I mean, it's amazing. So I just want to be remembered as uh, being around. Uh, Have I done my dream movie? You know, every movie that you make, uh, is it? it's that you finish it, that you manage to get it out to the audience, is it in itself a reward, it's a dream. That's the greatest. You know, they don't all work, some of them work, some of them don't. That's life. I just go out and do the best I can. It's funny, I, when I was in film school, you know, we all, everybody in the class wanted to be a director. That was, that's the, that's where you make the movie. There were 99 of us sitting in these seats, and the teacher came in and said, maybe one of you will make it. Maybe one of you will get, be lucky enough to have the opportunity to actually direct a movie. And all of us in the room thought, no, of course it's going to be me, of course it's going to be me. I didn't realize how much luck has to do with it, the being in the right place at the right time. All you can really do is prepare yourself for it, be ready for the opportunity when it comes, and you just have to have great luck. I had a lot of luck because I've managed to, for the most part, make my own films. They're my movies. They are my vision, right or wrong, like them or not. A lot of them have my soundtracks. I've written a bunch of them. They're the way I see this story. And that in itself is something that that you fight for.
Then there was one of those awkward moments at a press roundtable where you hear a question that kind of makes you wince. So although the question was lame from one of the other reporters, Carpenter gave the perfect answer. Would you, if you had to choose one over the other, content versus style, could you? Don't answer that yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Content versus style. Content versus style. Uh, which is most important? Yes. It's all the same. Movie is content and style. They're, they're, you can't separate them. Movies are the sum of their parts. Content and style is in every every film has has that. Now it, it, your choices are what's interesting. I want to do this story. This is the content of this story. I want to do this. And this is the style I'm going to approach it in. You can evaluate a director on on those choices. I mean, that's the ball game right there. A lot of this comes from Howard Hawks. Uh, he's my biggest influence as a director. And, and the reason why is he is an, inv- an invisible technician. Alfred Hitchcock wears his technique right on his sleeve. We all look at his movies and you can see what he does. You can see the cuts. You can see the suspense built up in terms of a Russian montage idea. Okay, cut, 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 cut. You can see the, the shower scene in Psycho. It's a showcase. But after having seen it, you, it's, it's out there. It's easy, it's easy to rip it off and copy it. What's more difficult is to copy, rip off, understand Howard Hawks' technique. He makes you think he has no style. He makes you think you're watching a story. And this was why he was so anonymous for so many years until the French said, my God, who is the personality behind this, these movies? Who's putting the thought into this? Whose view, vision of the world is this? That's what started really getting me. I thought, man, this is a great artist. Interesting, Ford is in that same category too? John Ford? I don't know. He, he, see, Hawks, the difference between the two men is that John Ford is a, more of the immigrant point of view of America. He's very involved with family and tradition. He's very, he's very involved with the settling of the West and everybody's the family values kind of guy. Hawks was the first modern American director. Cynical, he's talking about modern people, newspaper reporters. The, the soldiers and the cowboys in Hawks' movie, they don't go out and do what they do for the country and their flag and mom and apple pie. They do it because it's their job. This is what they're paid to do. Are you good enough to do your job? That, to me, seems to be a sophisticated modern American director at work. Very different than Ford, who romanticizes and softens everything. Everything is this kind of Irish music starts to play. Red River Valley starts to play, and you get misty. After all those roundtables were done, I finally got to speak to John Carpenter one-on-one at the Vampire's Press Junket. But we got to speak about more than just the film. I started by asking him how he got involved in making a vampire movie. The idea of making a vampire movie is uh, very difficult because vampires are so generic to the culture. They're a worldwide culture. They're not in and and of themselves frightening anymore. Uh, Dracula as a creation is is on a lunchbox. Uh, Buffy's on TV. We've seen we've seen it all. Okay. Uh, the only thing you can do with it is make the vampires somehow more imposing and more threatening to the characters in the movie. My approach was to make them more like savages, animals, uh, and de-gothicize them, if you will, 
take away some of their brooding, romantic, uh, I'm the lonely, uh, I'm the lonely, sensitive vampire standing against the night wind feel to it. Uh, you know, vampires, the vampire myth has been around cultures probably since we were all sitting, sitting by a campfire as a tribe, you know. The evil is out there in the bushes. It's going to, you know, grab your kids. It's going to rip your throat out. It's, a, you know, a wild animal. And someone thought of the idea of that maybe the evil is in the human heart. And so there'd be a person who would behave like an animal. The werewolf legend is the, the man or woman who turns into a, a wolf. Well, that's kind of savagery. The vampire is the same thing, except it has sexual overtones, the, take, the drinking of blood and taking fluid out of the body. Uh, but there's also the Dracula, Bram Stoker aspect. Uh, Dracula was the dying aris uh, European aristocracy, feeding off the blood of the working class, uh, trying to live, you know, doomed forever to an eternal existence. It was also the romance novel, uh, the Bronte sisters, the cliffs and the, the, the tragic nobleman coming through the, the bedroom uh, doors and the bodice-ripping action of the of the maiden in the bed to get bitten. It's all kind of funny now, but it's had so many incarnations. What are you going to do with it? Super vampires are supernatural. And you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in the supernatural at all. I don't, you know. So for me, I took, uh, I took this opportunity to make a Western. Uh, my vampire movie, the vampires are more like, again, going back to the wild animal issue. I mean, do you think in some ways that vampires were never meant to be really scary so much as to appeal to that dark side, that they've always been more attractive as evil figures than a lot of other, you know, horror characters? You know, you notice something about uh, the culture nowadays. There's a little uh, uh, fashion glamour vampire chic happening. The young kids like to dress up kind of in this gothic outfits with dark, dark uh, lipstick and long nails and... Some of them run around pretending to be vampires, and uh, it's like the gothic pose. I don't know. It's appealing to the the outsider in in society in a way, the the brooding loner, uh, and uh, they are appealing. I think they are, uh, especially from the original Dracula, who is uh, the the evil side of of sex, the dark side of sex. The oh, I mean, it's irresistible. I can't. I can't resist you. Here you come with those big teeth of yours. It's kind of funny anyway, but but I, you know it's very fashionable. What seems to be different in your film and also in Blade, and I think it started possibly back in Rabbit, is the notion of the vampirism as a virus. Is mm -hmm. this something that's more contemporary to give it kind of a, a more contemporary feel in post-AIDS kind of generation? Well, in in uh, certainly in Rabbit, the viral issue was was playing out. I think that's a convenient, I think that, that a virus is a convenient modern explanation for something that originally was a supernatural issue. Um, supernatural is harder and harder to sell. Uh, you know, when it's done well, like The Exorcist, which is a, basically a supernatural horror movie, it's done so that it allows the cynics in the audience, the skeptics, to say, oh, okay, well, still. So a virus is a, uh, an interesting, 
approach. Actually, the first time the virus was used in, in, in any kind of literature that I know of was in Richard Matheson's novel, I Am Legend. He's the, the, man, the man is the last man on earth, and they're all, everybody's a vampire from a virus. That's where I kind of got my inspiration. Do you think that also helps to make it maybe more scary for contemporary audiences? I suppose. Uh, contemporary audiences are, are uh, they're a tough audience nowadays. There's this postmodern cynicism that's infl inflicted the audience. Audience has seen so many movies, so much television. They've become extremely cynical about the form the movie's going to take. The good guy always wins. Uh, motherhood, uh, purity, uh, apple pie, patriotism always win. They always triumph. Uh, it's a family values time. When you've shown this over and over and over again on television and in the movies, you grow up with a cynicism about what you're watching. Chinatown wouldn't work today. They would never let you do it. They'd never let you end a movie like that. The audience would come out. The the the. If Chinatown was market research today, they the audiences would. I mean, they make you cut. They'd make him go back and reshoot the movie. It just wouldn't happen. One of the things I find so difficult too is they do all these behind-the-scenes things. Everybody knows what a uh, blue screen is now. You know, everybody knows how. So, how do you go it, go into a film to try and scare an audience? There, there are only two movie techniques that exist in the world. There hasn't been another one invented, either Russian montage or German expressionism. Russian montage was first, you know, glimpsed in the battle, uh, the Odessa step sequence in the battle of Potemkin. Hitchcock uses, uses it. Now everybody uses it, commercials. It is the fast cuts uh, that, fast editing, sometimes unrelated shots, inserts, close-ups, wide shots. If you cut them together with enough tempo, they will cause excitement in the audience regardless of content. Doesn't matter what the content is, the audience is, is, is being stimulated by the images. Well, if you do that enough in a commercial and television, so you're selling, I don't know, toothpaste or something, everything is hyped like this. More difficult to do and more, uh, I don't know, disturbing is German Expressionism, meaning that it's quiet. There are wider shots. It's, uh, it's melancholy. And out of this melancholy, when you have something that jumps out and scares you, it's utterly more terrifying. See, the only thing about scaring people, in a movie sense, it's, it's putting you in a, an anxiety situation. It's not scaring you. It's making you anxious. In Psycho, a perfect example, when she's walking up the stairs to the house in the end, Vera Miles, you're saying, don't, what are you doing? It's making you anxious for what's going to come. That's what fear in the movies is. You, you know... You go to a horror movie, you know they're going to jump out at you or do something. They're going to, when is it going to happen and what is it going to be? And how far will the filmmaker go to do this? Then that makes you anxious so that when it happens, you jump and grab your date, whatever, husband and wife, whatever happens. But that's what it's about. Well, it seems like today what the answer for a lot of filmmakers is is to throw in the jokes, too, so that, you know, in case we don't scare you, we're going to let you know that that wasn't <coughs> our only purpose here. I think you're talking about the, the, the jokiness a lot of times is a, is a result of this postmodern cynicism that in, is infected the audience. And it's inevitable, I guess, there's no going back, 
they're so very jaded about what they see dramatically. Usually movies are telling them that they're seeing a movie. First time I really noticed it was in uh, a submarine picture where one character said to another, now you have to call just like they did in Star Trek. And I thought, I, are you kidding me? You kidding me? Make, make a Star Trek TV reference in a, you know, in a, in a kind of a tense, but it's, uh, I suppose it's under the, the, the idea that we're all modern now, we're modern and hip. And then there is a general disdain for the, for as much as there's a love of celebrity, a need, if everyone is, everyone is a celebrity now and everyone has an opinion. So that's breeding a contempt of, of movies and people in movies. And the audience is very contemptuous of us Hollywood folk. They'd love to see us fall and rise, you know. It's, we know that our God, we build our gods up and we tear them down. They're also contemptuous that they think that we all sit around making all this money and just turning out, turning out trash for them. It's a terrible situation. The relationship between audience and, and filmmakers, Hollywood, is, is not good. One thing I thought was interesting is when I saw H2O, I mean, the film was very disappointing. Mm. And, I haven't seen it, I don't And, I mean, what I'm just curious about is, I mean, I remember, <coughs> you know, you get scared by Halloween, and I'm wondering why the, these new kind of slasher films don't do well, aside from the fact that, you know, they're trying to rip off, but it seems in some ways that the filmmakers are almost scared to really scare you. Because, I mean, Halloween, I think part of what was so scary was you don't have that security that you know the girl's going to live at the end. And somehow in these new ones, you feel like, okay, there's only six characters. They can only kill a couple of them. They're not going to kill the lead. Um, do you think filmmakers are kind of scared to break some of those kind of rules? Well, I, I think there are two reasons uh, why, why truly scary movies are, don't, are not coming out. First of all, it's, everything is so formulaic in Hollywood. There's a, there's a, there's a horror formula to slasher movies have begun to follow this horror formula. You can tell there are going to be a bunch of victims and you can kind of pick out who they're going to be and uh, the audience is so far ahead. But I think the big problem is not that. It's not the form, it's the content. I think some people don't want to get into the darkness as directors, as writers, as, as artists. They just don't want to go there. To be, truly, to be truly conversant in that, I think you have to have brushed up against a little bit of human evil in your life and to be able to make a movie about it. And uh, you have to kind of believe in it, whether it's your own fears, you know, your own life projected upon a film, or an encounter with human evil, or, or uh, something of that nature. There needs to be some personal investment from the director into the, the, the darkness. You have to, an editor told me once on a film, he says, you have to embrace the darkness, man. You gotta embrace it. Let it be your lover because that's what you're that's what you're telling the story about. So what would you say is how you've brushed up against that evil? Ooh, I've brushed up I've brushed up against real life human evil many times. And starting in my own circumstances as a child and throughout my, my life. And it's uh, there's nothing more chilling. Nothing. What scares you? Everybody's afraid of the same things. Uh, we're all afraid. We're all born afraid. We're all afraid of the unknown, of death, disfigurement, loss of loved one, pain. Everyone feels them, so it's easy to it's easy to generate that kind of uh, fear in an audience because they're going to associate with that. Primarily death. We're all afraid of death. We all invent these things to get us out of it. Those fears expand into personal relationships, uh, into uh, 
and other areas and fear of intimacy, whatever you want to call it. These are all primal things. Go back to parents. So I can't, uh, I can't invent a new kind of fear because we're dealing with something that's as uh, clear-cut as, as sexuality. We all have, we all have our varieties of it, and our in, and our, but it's a part of the human condition. Now, are you a fan of vampire films? I mean, how do you see your film kind of fitting into the genre? I mean, what <coughs> you liked in the past in the vampire genre, and how do you see your film fitting? I'm a Western fan. I love Westerns, okay? I think my biggest nightmare would be stuck, would be stuck in a gothic costume picture, Edwardian outfits and English accents and, and candles down a hallway. I wouldn't know what to do. But to be able to take the vampire uh, genre, so to speak, and reset it in, in a Western setting, making it more like a, a cowboy movie. Uh, now, now I can handle that. And by de-romanticizing the vampires and making them, again, savage creatures that are coming after you, and making the slayers as savage, savage as the vampires, you're down to the kind of uh, level that I, I enjoy. You're giving me the axe. Oh, boy. Cool, oh, thanks. I just wanted to ask real quick, what kind of a script did you write for John Wayne? Was a Western. A, but I mean, was it a classic kind of Wayne? Yeah, Blood River was the name of it. Uh, yeah, that was a cool script. That was my 1998 interview with John Carpenter. I got him in a slightly more reflective mood when I spoke to him by phone in 2012 when Halloween was being re-released. In 1978, Michael Myers redefined terror and became the face of Halloween. Now, he's back. Terrifying classic returns to theaters beginning October 25th. You can't kill the boogeyman. First of all, I want to say that I'm pleasantly surprised that when they decided to re-release Halloween, it didn't come out in 3D or something. <laughs> How did this re-release come about? Well, you know, I have no idea. And that's the, the funny thing about being uh, being me. No one tells me anything. I had no idea that they were planning on this, but I'm very delighted that they're doing it. So how do you think Halloween has held up over the decades? Do you feel that it's as strong a film now uh, or a different film in some way? I still feel like it's the same film. It, it came along at a particular time and place, and uh, it had a resonance for, for when it came out, but... Uh, the temp, the horror template, has has kind of remained the same since then. I think it, I think it holds up pretty well. And what do you think it was kind of responding to at the time that you made it? What do you feel that it particularly resonated for at the time of its release? <clears throat> I don't think I'd, that people had audiences had seen a movie quite like this that didn't uh, really didn't uh, address the backstory of the killer, but the killer was a force of nature. And he was part human, part uh, part supernatural, and uh, that was just something new at the time. Now there's all sorts of things like it, but but then it was new. 
horror started with a real focus on supernatural, I mean, in the early days, but then it it kind of, like after Psycho, it, there was a focus more on kind of realism and like real ser- serial killers and, you know, kind of real dangers. And Halloween seems to kind of crossbreed those. You get the supernatural, but you also get kind of those real world elements as well. I would agree. I would totally agree. I think I think Psycho is the father of father of modern horror, uh, modern horror films. It, it was a, it was a turn in 1960 when that came out, and it moved away from a more theatrical feel to a more realistic feel, and it dealt with killers in the modern world. Uh, not to compare Halloween particularly, but but. It dealt with uh, evil in an ordinary place, which is your hometown, which is in the daytime. But the evil itself was almost supernatural, so it was a switch, switch back. So what were the films that scared you when you were young? Well, when I was young, I was scared by everything. So uh, any movie that had the least little bit in it was terrifying to me. I love the science fiction and horror movies of the 50s. The Thing from Another World, The Fly, uh, movies like that, just it just really scared me when I was a kid. But like I say, I was a real wimp. Why do you think you were such a wimp? I am just born that way. Are you still that way? Well, I think uh, I've, I've calmed down a lot and not, not quite as afraid. I, I conquered some of my fears in the 80s when I got my helicopter pilot's license, sort of faced, faced off. Uh, death a little bit. No, I'm still I'm still scared of stuff. Sure, I think we're all afraid of the same things. All humans are. We're all afraid of death. We're all afraid of loss of our loved ones or disfigurement or or just loss of identity. All the things that people are afraid of worldwide are I'm afraid of. That makes me an expert. Do you think that having those fears and kind of being able to face them makes you a better horror director? Oh sure, oh sure. That's the whole part of it is to be and to be able to frame it and to understand it so that so it's not a mystery. Fear is not a mystery to the director. So why are people frightened of that? Well, I know why they're frightened of that because I am. What do you think it is about horror films that are so attractive to people? I mean, we go kind of willingly into the theater knowing that we may be terrifying ourselves or giving ourselves nightmares, but we do it, and we do it so often and willingly. It's fun. It's fun. It's like going to a, a roller coaster ride or a, I mean, it's just all sorts of fun. You just can't, you, you, you can't doubt how much fun it is. So, I mean, we wouldn't do it if we didn't enjoy ourselves. I think that's the whole issue. And we uh, we do enjoy ourselves in horror. Well, those of us who are fans of horror, I think, really appreciate that. And yet, it's also kind of a very malign genre where people, you know, feel like either it's not necessary or it goes too far or, you know, people who see it must be twisted. Or Well, that's but that's the same as rock and roll or rap music or horror movies. Or, I mean... A lot of popular culture is that way, and a lot of popular culture's job is to push boundaries. That having been said, I think uh, horror really appeals to the young, because they live to take chances, and they live believing, not believing they're ever going to die, or anything is going to happen to them, and they live for thrills in, in some ways, in some safe ways, and horror films are a real cheap, safe thrill. Now, you've worked a lot in genre films. 
Do you feel that by doing that, you've been kind of underappreciated or undervalued as a filmmaker? I don't know. But I've got a nice career, so I mean, I'm not going to complain about it. I, I don't think people, some people don't take me that seriously, but some do. It's really, it's really unusual. I'm, a, I'm a kind of a multifaceted career. I've able to, been able to make all sorts of different kinds of movies in my years making films. And I'm, I'm just delighted by it. You know, I, I couldn't have asked for anything better. Well, one of the things that I'm really excited about having Halloween back on the big screen again is that I think people forget how well you shot that film and how well you used the screen and the space. Well, I used uh, my favorite aspect ratio, which is uh, Panavision. And I have a great affection and love for it. It's, uh, but thank you. That's a, that's a great compliment. I have nothing else to say except thanks. Well, what do you like about the Panavision? Why did you think that it worked well for that particular film? Well, I've never really seen too many horror films done in that in that aspect ratio. That was it's just kind of different, and uh, I don't know. It's just aesthetics. I just love the aesthetics of that that frame. I just think it's unbelievable, and uh, I, I'm just in love with it. I've always been in love with it. How did you approach? kind of building the scares into the film. I mean, one thing is people may remember that there's a lot of kills in the film, but they may not remember that you really used a lot of restraint in showing them. So how, what was kind of your approach to making it scary, or how did you feel you wanted to heighten that tension or heighten the horror? Well, what you're, what you're saying is, is, is absolutely accurate in terms of, of what the, the movie was. But... Uh, you had a man. You have a man, essentially a man with a knife, or a, or a creature with a knife. I mean, it's not. Everybody knows what that that is about. So you don't have to show much. It's more about the the uh, you know what happens in the dark. Uh, is he's everywhere. He's. It, it's more the dread and anticipation of that than uh, what I show you in this particular film. It all depends on the movie, though. You see, that's not just a universal. If you have a movie that requires seeing something a little bit harder and and more graphic, then you should do it. But that's all story dependent. Well, what kind of things dictate kind of? I mean, because it seems like for a horror filmmaker, the the debate you're constantly having is like, how much do you show and when do you show it? It's all a matter of director's discretion, you know, and the good hopefully the good taste of a director. There's no rule. I've had people try to lecture me on what to show and what not to show. I remember this very earnest, very, very earnest uh, Italian actress and I were having lunch, and she said, you must never show the devil. I can't do an accent. Well, maybe, but maybe you can. I mean, I just think I think any rule is can be broken. How do you feel about the impact that Halloween had on the horror genre, I mean, it seems like because it was successful and it was well-received, you know, there were a lot of films that either directly imitated it or played off of it. And how do you feel about that? Well, it's always nice to be on the on the good end of things as opposed to having a, a complete, utter failure, you know. I think it's it's very pleasant. Uh, I think they, they affect... Uh, uh, horror movies are affected mainly because... Uh, Producers looked at Halloween and said, "Oh, look at this! It's a really cheap film that uh, 
really doesn't have much production value to it. It has a lot of a lot of uh, sort of style to it, but we can do that and make a bunch of money. That's all money driven. Am I sounding too cynical? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Well, I'm wondering if, if that kind of feeling, how that affected you over the length of your career. I mean, do you feel that you're constantly in this battle to, you know, try to create art or try to create the films you wanted in this business environment that was really looking only at the bottom line? Well, that's movies. You know, there's nothing we can do about that. A little bit, but uh, I've made I've made big budget movies. I've made little budget movies. I've made all sorts of of, of the kinds of movies. So I'm not I'm not going to cry about it. But now they've really there are you know there's a new low budget uh, horror movies like Paranormal, which are essentially movies that are made for very little and can make and have made a whole lot of money. So it it still exists. It's still happening. Which of your films do you feel the most satisfied with? None. None. <laughs> I, I don't watch my own movies now. You know, I think, oh, dear, why did I do that? You know, I, I just, I'm too critical. Even now you can't go back and... No, I have no, I have no. I'm just going to see the mistakes, you know. Oh, God, why did I do that that way? What's wrong with me? You know, why is it, why, is, why didn't I pace this faster? Whatever their criticism may be. Well, what advice would you have for uh, filmmakers starting out who want to do horror nowadays? Well, it's 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 uh, both good and bad. These are these are hard times for for filmmakers. Movies have changed a lot since I was uh, a, a kid in the business and just coming into it. So I don't know that my that my uh, expertise is going to be. Uh, Quite responsive now. It's, it's just you just have to keep at it, and you can't you can't let the realities of the movie business defeat you because there are many and there are many obstacles. But the the road to making making horror films is is really there, and making movies is there. You just have to be extremely good. Who are the horror directors that you personally admire the most, or that actually make make movies that scare you still? Well, you know, I'm a fan of Dario Argento, and, and George Romero's work is, is awesome. And I've always loved him. And the classic uh, old-timers, like my, myself, well, not myself, but Toby Hooper, and George Romero, and Dario Argento. And is there anything that they have in common that you feel makes you admire them, or are they just e- each one unique? Each one is unique, but uh, I know them, which is nice. We're, all, we're friends. And I don't know. It's nice to survive sometimes. A survivor's club there? <laughs> well, we all feel that way, you know. And are there any uh, current horror films that you look to, either from the U.S. or from abroad, that, you know, particularly that you admired or that you think are kind of pushing the envelope a little bit? Well, the last film I thought really did something different was a movie called Let the Right One In, not the American remake. But I just thought it was a really reinvention of uh, the vampire legend. We've had we've had you know sort of the Twilight Vampire Saga, which I'm not a big fan of, but uh, I thought that that was a good movie. So you mentioned that um, one of the reasons you think Halloween holds up is that because there's a basic kind of formula or, or basic elements in horror that have remained the same. But do you feel that the filmmaking or that the approach or that the genre itself has changed in any kind of fundamental way? I don't know. I really don't know about that. Yeah, it has. I mean. 
everything that's come before is is now freely borrowed from uh and but that's always been the case I don't know I don't really don't know <laughs> what kind of memories do you have of the actual making of Halloween? Was it a particularly difficult experience or do you have good uh, memories of the most it was really fun. We just had a great time. And we're just a bunch of kids trying to make a movie. And it was just a blast, you know. I mean, it couldn't have been more fun. We worked real hard. We worked very intensely for 20-some-odd days, and then we had it. And I loved it. Did you have any kind of sense of the impact that it was going to have? No clue. No clue. We had no clue. Have you been pleased with the fact that, you know, you can... Michael Myers is still probably one of the more popular Halloween costumes. and Hell yes, <laughs> yeah, of course. It's great. And the music's still around, and, you know, I mean, I think it's all great. Listen, it couldn't be better. Well, it could be better, but it's not. You know, it's fine. It's great. And talk a little bit about composing that theme for Halloween. Well, that was a, that was really came from my dad, uh, who when I was younger, taught me five, four time on a pair of bongos he had bought me for Christmas just to show me something different than four, four. And that's, that's what all I did really was uh, play uh, four, four time on octaves on the piano. And uh, I had been working around that. I had been noodling around with that theme for years, you know, just sort of it was just an eerie little, little theme. And I just, or decided to try it out. And did you have that in your head kind of before you started making the film or only after? No, only after. Uh, I, my my job as a composer is basic. But by that I mean it's uh, only about filling a need, which is that some of the scenes need a score. So my job is I'm cheap and I'm fast, and I, I kind of know what needs a uh, what needs work. Do you enjoy doing that part of it? It's hard work. I, I don't work that hard anymore. I've worked real hard all my career. I want to take it easy. I want to have a good time in life. But uh, that's not always possible. Do you have a current project that you're working on I now? I have several things that, I, that I, they call in development, which means that they're in the various stages of, of being set up. But uh, nothing particularly uh, that I want to talk about, because nothing is that close. In other words, there's nothing that close to production at this moment. Do you have any kind of dream project that you... No, absolutely not. Uh, my, my dream project is, is every year is watching NBA basketball. I'm just in love with basketball. My dream project is to do as little as possible and make money. All right. Well, your fans want you to make some more films. I'm, well, just, I'm just saying. That's very kind of you. You're very nice. Well, I want to thank you for your time. Yeah, that's fun. I'm looking forward to seeing Halloween on the big screen again. It will be coming. It will be nice. All right. And I do hope you make some more films. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye. I wish I could have interviewed John Carpenter again so I could have talked to him about all of his films rather than focusing on a particular one. 
He's a director I deeply respect for his craft and for his dedication to making the films he wants to make. He makes lean, mean films that have no fat. His films stand up as classics of their genre, but then proceed to explode those genre roots. The Thing may be Carpenter's best work, and it's based on a film by Howard Hawks, a man that he deeply respected. It's a classic sci-fi horror film elevated by brilliant practical effects and made resonant by a social commentary about a world Carpenter was living in in 1982. It's a film that's distinctly of its time and yet universal in exploring human nature and fear. If you're in San Diego, please check out the film geek's Big Trouble in Little Cinema, the films of John Carpenter. It kicks off with Dark Star on January 22nd at 1 p.m. at the Digital Gym Cinema and continues with one film a month on select Sundays at 1 p.m. It'll be a chance for fans of his work to pay tribute to the director. Cinema Junkie is proud to be one of the co-presenters of Landmark Theater's Midnight Movies at the Ken Cinema. Coming up on January 21st is Rocky Horror Picture Show with live shadow cast by Crazed Imaginations. And you can celebrate Women in Horror Month on February 4th and 5th with Mary Heron's American Psycho. Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. So till our next film fix... I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.